was thinking about it tonight. I couldn't tell you the number of times when gone through the week and the week has not been kind and I have been discouraged and despondent and we gather and we sing and as we begin to sing the truth of the words and the music sort of wash over me and encourage and strengthen my heart. I, I need this time that we have together on a Wednesday night. So we're going to be at Hebrews 11. Uh, we're going to start in verse 28 and we're just going to look at two verses. So I'm not going to ask you to stand. It'll be quick. Hebrews 11, 28 29, but primarily 28 tonight. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. The title of the message tonight is The Salvation of Faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We thank you tonight for the opportunity we have to gather to sing your praise, to study your word, to experience your presence. We thank you, Father, you are here. Uh, you have promised that, Father, we are your temple as we gather together. Your spirit is here among us, with, that, that you inhabit our praises. And so we know tonight you're here in the midst of us. We know from Revelation, Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. And Lord, we rejoice to know that, that what we're doing here in the middle of the panhandle of Oklahoma, does not go unnoticed by our great God and our glorious Savior. Father, tonight we do come with a need for You. Father, more than we need anything else tonight, we just need You. We need Your Spirit to strengthen us. How We need Your Word to refresh us. We need that living water to help us. We live in a dry and a thirsty land. There is no water. There is nothing can refresh us as You can. So refresh us tonight. Strengthen us through your word. Send your spirit to use the word to challenge us and equip us and encourage us and help us. We could be your people. Draw us closer to you and help us as we go out this week to be lights that would shine brightly for Jesus. That the darkness of the world would just be dispelled by our presence because of Christ and his work within us. We ask this in Jesus name for his sake. Amen. All right. The context of these verses is probably familiar to most of us, but I want to take a minute and just remind us about what's going on in this passage. The family of Jacob or Israel had gone to Egypt to live at the request of Pharaoh during the time where Joseph was like the prime minister. They were to go there and live because there was a worldwide famine and it would continue for several years. When the family went into Egypt, there were about 70 of them. But over the next 300 years, the family grew and prospered into a great multitude of people. There were so many people that the Pharaoh of that time feared them. He feared if Egypt was invaded, that the people of Israel would turn against Egypt and Egypt would then be defeated. So in an effort to beat the Israelites down and hopefully to, to stop their, their growing, he enslaved them. And he made them captives, he made them slaves, and he made their lives bitter. But according to God's word, the harder he made their life, the more they prospered because God's hand was upon them during this time. And when that didn't work, the Pharaoh decided what needed to be done was they would just kill off the boys, the newborn male children. The thinking being that the newborn male children would die, the, the female children would marry Egyptians, they would become Egyptians, they would bear Egyptians, and, and they would basically 
thin the herd out significantly in that way. His first plan was to have the, the Hebrew midwives to, to kill the kids as they were born in an effort to say they were stillborn and they had not been born alive at all. Hebrew midwives, though, feared God and refused. They refused to murder children, for they knew that was certainly not the will of their God. Knowing that was not going to work, he just came out with a, a big plan to toss all the Hebrew boys into the rivers. So they would be eaten and drowned. Um, and then, as what we looked at last week, there was one family who saw their son and they hid him. And so they could not hide him any longer. His name was Moses. And he was raised up by God to be the deliverer who would deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery. A lot of things happened. Moses tries to deliver them in the wrong time and in the wrong way, has to flee into the wilderness while he's in the wilderness, though God has not given up on him. God reaches out to him. God seeks him out, calls him to go and to be the deliverer. Moses accepts his mission from God. He goes and stands before Pharaoh and essentially says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Pharaoh responded and said, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And this sets things up. For God to work in a mighty way to show Pharaoh exactly who Yahweh is. God then sets out to show Pharaoh there is only one God in all of the world. It's not Pharaoh and it's not Ra and it's not any of the other Egyptian gods and goddesses. It is Yahweh. And he does this by sending a series of plagues upon the nation. In each of these plagues, God demonstrates he is Lord over nature, over creation, over the waters, over the sky. He is Lord over all things. And in each of these plagues, God also demonstrates His superiority over a particular Egyptian God. And what I want to do is to set up for what's going on here, just to quickly review the plagues that happened before the one described in verse 28. There was first the plague of blood. Exodus seven fourteen through 25. In this first plague, God turned uh, the, the Nile into blood. Uh, in this plague, God demonstrated his superiority over Hapi, the God of the Nile. Then God changed it back. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't circumstances. It was God did it, and then God undid it according to his will. There was a plague of frogs in Exodus 8, verse 1 through 15, which to me seems to be the tamest of all of them. But in this plague, God demonstrated his superiority over Hecate, the frog-headed goddess of fruitfulness. There was a plague of lice or gnats, depending on what translation you have, Exodus 8, 16 through 19. This plague was significant because it was the first time the Egyptian magicians recognized this was the hand of God. They had duplicated, in some ways, the, the power of God through their tricks. They were not able to do this, and they said this is the finger of God. And in this plague, God demonstrated his superiority over Geb, the earth God. There was a plague of flies, Exodus 20, or I'm sorry, Exodus 8, 20 through 32. The plague of flies is significant because this is the first time God sets a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. There would be flies all over, but there would not be any in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. This was to determine or to show Pharaoh these things that were happening. They weren't coincidence. It wasn't like Moses said it and something just happened to happen. This was God. And God had such control over all things, He could make a distinction between His people and not His people. 
This also demonstrated his superiority over Kipara, the beetle-shaped god. There was the plague of the death of the livestock, Exodus 9, 1-8. At this point, the consequences are being ratcheted up. Up to this point, they've been inconvenient. Uh, they've been difficult, but they've not been deadly. Nothing has died in response to what God has done. But at this point, things change. And God shows He has the power over life and death. And there was also, God said, a distinction between His people and not His people as the Egyptian cows died, the livestock died, but the Hebrew livestock did not. In this plague, God demonstrated His superiority over Apis, the cattle god. There was the plague of boils. In Exodus 9, verses 8-12, through 12, this plague also demonstrates things are getting more severe because now there is an affliction on the people themselves. There was nature and inconvenience, then there was death among the animals, but nothing had touched the people until now. And now suddenly the people would be afflicted with boils, similar to what we looked at Sunday uh, in, the, in the bowls of judgment, similar to what you see in the book of Job is what afflicts Job. And, and while the Bible doesn't specifically mention God made a distinction between His people and not His people, I believe He did. I believe what would make the most sense in light of the context and what's happening, God is making a distinction at this point between those who are His people and those who are not, is that there were boils on the Egyptians and there were none upon the Israelites. And during this plague, God demonstrated His superiority over Thoth, the God of medicine and wisdom. There was a plague of hail. Exodus 9, 13-35. Uh, I don't know how much hell a desert climate gets, but I expect this was enough to be terrifying to them. They were warned the hell would be so significant that animals left outside would die. And, and this was an act of mercy on God's part because He told them they could bring their animals in. He would give them time. And those who brought their animals in, their animals did not die. Those who did not bring them in, their animals did die. And God made a distinction between His people and the Egyptians in this plague as well. In this plague, God demonstrated His superiority over, and I'm sure it's Newt, but it's spelt N-U-T, Nut, the goddess of the sky. There was the plague of locusts, Exodus 10, verses 1-20. through 20. Uh, This must have been a very destructive plague as it wiped out whatever the crops were left from the hell. In this plague, we are to see God is able to bring complete destruction on Egypt if Pharaoh does not submit to the Lord. In this plague, God demonstrates His superiority over Anubis, the god of the fields. And then there was the plague of darkness. We're told the dark in Exodus 10, verses 21 through 29. We're told the darkness was so deep it could be felt, which I'm sure is a significant uh, amount of darkness. And in this, God demonstrated His superiority over Ra, the sun god, who was like the chief god of the land. But there was one plague yet to come. And it would be the worst of all. It was the death of the firstborn. Our text, verse 28, speaks of this final plague. And it speaks of it as God saving His people from it. Now, this this plague would be different from the others. In the others, God sort of did all of it. God sent the plague. And when God wanted to spare people, it was God who did it. God just said, this side of the room is not going to get hit. You guys are going to. But this time it would be different. This time God was going to to come through Egypt at a particular time. And the firstborn were all going to die. Unless unless they, they took a lamb and they killed it and they put its blood in the bowl and they put the, blow, put the blood on the 
doorposts of the house. And anyone who would believe God and who would do what God said would be spared. God offered a path of salvation for anyone who would hear his message, believe his message, and respond to his message in the prescribed way. So what were the prescribed ways? Well, first, believe God's message. To be saved from the final plague, they had to believe God's message. They had to believe God was going to do what he said he would do. Now, God's message came with two sides, and they must believe both. The good news, or the bad news, and the good news. The bad news. The bad news was, God was going to move through Egypt about midnight on a specific day, and he was going to kill all the firstborn. This would happen from humans to animals, from Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the slaves who lived somewhere else, from those who were free to those who were in prison. No one would be exempted. There would not be an entire household in all of Egypt who did not feel the bitter sting of death on this night. That was the bad news. The good news. There was a path for salvation. God had made a way of salvation for anyone who would kill a lamb, spread its blood on the doorposts of their house. And if they did this, if they believed God's message, the good news, there was salvation available. This was the message God gave to Moses to give to the people. If they wanted to experience the salvation God offered, the salvation of faith, they had to believe the message of God. They had to believe all of it. They had to believe the bad news. And they had to believe the good news. But if they didn't believe the bad news, there was no point in believing the good news. But if God wasn't going to come through the town and kill the firstborn, what would be the point of killing an animal and putting its blood on the doorpost? They had to believe the bad news, but they also had to believe the good news. It wasn't enough to believe God was going to come through and kill the firstborn. They also had to believe the good news enough to do what God said to do. And it was only in believing the good news and the bad news, the bad news and the good news, they would experience the salvation of the Lord. In the same way, salvation in our day also comes through faith. And to experience the salvation of faith, we too must believe God's message. And God's message has two sides. The bad news and the good news. The bad news and the good news both summed up in one verse beautifully. The wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bad news, the wages of sin is death. Now, there are several truths we need to know about that one statement. First, we need to know sin is a real thing. That there is a thing called sin. And, and it is not something we get to decide. It is based upon an absolute standard God has given about right and wrong. Romans 3, 19 and 20 tells us that the law of God was given to, to stop every mouth and to cause every person to become guilty before God. The law, the Ten Commandments, is God's absolute and righteous standard. And anything contrary to that is a sin. Sin is a real thing. Also part of the bad news is sin is an offense against God. Sin is violating God's absolute and righteous law. 1 John 3 and 4 tells us that sin is violating God's law. So God has said, thou shalt 
And God has said, thou shalt not. And sin is saying, oh, I most certainly shall not to what God has said I shall do. And sin is saying, I certainly shall do what God has said I shall not do. Now, the reason we have to understand sin is an offense against God is because God is the law giver. And as the law giver, he is the one who has set the standard. He has set the rules. And when we go against that, we are not going against man. We are not going against a church. We are not going against a religion. We are going against the God who has given the law. He is the king over kings, the Lord over lords, the creator, redeemer and sustainer. And as such, any violation of his law is a sin against God himself. Third part of the bad news. We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. We don't have time tonight to turn to Exodus chapter 20 and look at the Ten Commandments. But if we were to go through the Ten Commandments, we would find all of us have violated more than one of God's righteous standards. We have coveted. We have lusted. We have hated people in our hearts. We have not kept God first in all aspects of our lives. We have all violated God's righteous standards. And that leads to the last part of the bad news. Sin earns a wage. The wages of sin is death. Now, something important I think we miss in our day. Sin, the punishment for sin, isn't something God gives us. It's something we earn. Grace is something God gives us. But wages for sin, the death of sin, it is we earn it. If you take a job and they agree to pay you $10 an hour, then at the end of 10 hours, they owe you $100. That's not a gift. They're not giving you anything. They're not blessing you with that. They're giving you the agreed upon wage, what you earned in your time there. In a similar way, the punishment for sin is not God saying, well, this is what I determined to do. No, no, it's what we earned. We chose sin, therefore we earned the wage of death. We earn it through our attitudes and our actions and, of course, our violations of God's law. This is the bad news. But the good news is there is a gracious gift of God, eternal life, that's found in Jesus Christ our Savior. God has made a way of salvation through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. John the Baptist declares to us Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter explains we are redeemed not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus redeems us. Jesus saves us from the curse of the law, from the punishment of the law, from the, the wages of our sin. Because He lived a sinless life and He died a sacrificial death and He rose victoriously over sin, death, and hell. Just as the Lamb in Exodus was slain to save the people from the judgment of God, so too the Lamb of God, Jesus, was slain and He saves us from the wrath to come. As an Exodus, we must believe both the bad news and the good news. If there is no bad news about sin, I don't need a Savior. And if I don't believe the good news, then there is no salvation. 
We must believe the message, the bad news and the good news. Then once we believe the message, we must respond to God's message. God gave the people very specific instructions on how to respond to the message. They were to take an unblemished lamb, an unblemished one-year-old male lamb. They were to separate it from the rest of the flock and basically watch it for 14 days to make sure it was truly unblemished. Then on the 14th day, they were to kill it at twilight, put its blood in a bowl and put the blood on the doorpost of the house. Then they were to roast the lamb whole and eat it. It wasn't enough for them to generally believe the message was true. They had to personally respond to God's message in the ways God said they had to respond. They would have to personally respond to God's message in the way God said they had to respond in the time God said they had to respond. If they didn't respond, or if they responded too late, they would not experience the salvation God promised. God's Word tells us They responded exactly the way God told them to respond, and so they were saved. God has also given us a very specific instructions on how we're to respond to His message of salvation by faith. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. The change of life part is critical when we talk about repentance. Now, genuine repentance is preceded by a godly sorrow for the sin committed. Godly sorrow is distinguished from a worldly sorrow in what motivates the sorrow. If I'm sorry I got caught, that's a worldly sorrow. If I'm sorry I might be punished, that's a worldly sorrow. If I'm sorry, people know that's a worldly sorrow. But if I'm sorry, I have sinned against a thrice holy God who has loved me enough to send his son to die for me. That is the kind of sorrow that is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow for the sin committed is a part of what leads to the life change. If I'm truly sorry about the action, then I'll try my best not to commit that action again. The life change aspect of repentance is often underestimated and underemphasized in our day, but it is not so in God's word. When we read God's word, we find John the Baptist saying that people should produce, they should repent and produce fruits consistent with repentance. We find Paul saying people should repent and perform deeds worthy, consistent with repentance. We learn from John the Baptist The fruits or deeds consistent with repentance is twofold. It is stop doing what is wrong and start doing what is right. John or Luke three, John gives us the example of that. And this is where the breakdown happens in our day. People hear the gospel, which is the message from God. They claim to respond to the gospel through repentance and faith. But then in so many cases, they go right back into the sin They came out of that. They don't stop doing what is wrong and and then start doing what is right. And and even more unfortunate, what will often happen is some well-meaning Christian will come alongside this person 
who has not stopped and not started and tell them, well, nobody's perfect. So you're okay. I'm sure. I'm sure you were sincere. I'm sure it's okay. Keep living in your sin. Nobody's perfect. But we don't find this sort of flippant mindset about repentance in God's word. We see from Paul and John and basically all of God's word, the proof of repentance is in the pudding of life change. Repentance, genuine, biblical, life-saving repentance always involves a change of life. No one who genuinely repents stays the same. Genuine repentance always motivates us to live differently. The reality is where there is no change of life, there is no genuine repentance. It's repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot take away one without destroying both. A person who repents does so because they believe. A person who believes will most definitely repent. Now faith here is not meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there is a God out there somewhere. It's not even enough to believe there was somebody named Jesus who lived and who died. Saving faith is very specific and very narrow. Our faith is in Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. Faith in Jesus for salvation is essentially letting go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Right? I cannot cling to my own personal sense of self-righteousness. I'm good enough. I cannot cling to my own personal sense of self-sufficiency. I can square myself away and cling to Jesus at the same time. I have to let go of one in order to grab on to the other. Faith in Jesus is letting go of our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency so we can cling to the cross as our only means of righteousness and salvation. Faith in Jesus is acknowledging, recognizing, understanding there are no good works we can do to earn our salvation. But it is a continuing belief that there are no good works I ever can do that will add to my salvation or keep my salvation or merit my salvation. It is an understanding my salvation is based wholly and completely upon the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. This is the response to the message of God about salvation by faith. This is the only message that saves. Now, let me me explain. Repentance toward God. I've sinned against you. Faith in Jesus. That is the only response. Not Jesus died, try harder. Not Jesus has died, be a good person. Jesus died and rose again. Repent of your sins against God. Believe solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that must be done personally. We cannot generally believe the message is true and experience salvation by faith. We must personally respond to God's message, the gospel, in the ways God says to respond. If we are to experience salvation 
by faith. Now, let me, and I don't actually have time for this, but I want to take the time to give you an example. Now, we won't go there because we don't have time for that. But take time and read Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. It's a story about a wedding feast. The master makes this big feast. He sends out invitations to these people and he invites them. They all say they're going to come. When the day comes for the invitation, the people all say no. One by one, the people who are invited begin to make excuses. So the master sends out one of his servants to go out into the highways and the hedges. Right? We know that phrase. To go out and to get people and to invite them in. And when they, when they come in, they're to put on wedding clothes. In Matthew's version of the story. And the wedding clothes are how they're supposed to dress. And so they're all invited. They're all given everything they need. These righteous clothes. These bright, clean clothes. So they can celebrate with the master. But he finds a guy who's at the feast and he's eating, but he's not dressed in the wedding clothes. He wants what the master offers, but he's not willing to respond in the way the master says he must respond. Anybody remember what happens to that guy? He is cast out. The point The wedding feast is the consummation, the day when Christ returns to claim His people. All are invited. But we must come the way He says to come. We must respond the way He says to respond, and that is by repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And any other response toward the message of God will find a person cast out. Depart from me! I never knew you. Repentance toward God. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is the only response to the gospel message that enables us to experience salvation by faith. And then thirdly, trust God's message. Once they had believed God's message, responded to God's message by putting the blood on the door. All they could do at that point was trust God's message. The final plague, the death of the firstborn, it was coming. They would still be in Egypt. God was not going to bring them out of Egypt until after this happened. And so there they would be in Egypt. And this great judgment was going to come through. And there were going to be people around them who would suffer death in their homes on that night. There would be a great cry rise up from all of Egypt. They would hear this cry with their own ears. And there was nothing they could do. They couldn't fix it. If if they didn't put the blood on the lamb, there was nothing they could do. If they did put the blood, there was nothing they could do to add to it. All they could do, all they could do, is trust the message. Trust God would keep His word, trust, God really would pass over them on that night because the blood of the Lamb was on the doorpost. Once we have believed God's message, the gospel, personally responded to God's message with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, then all we can do is trust in God's message. We've talked about repentance being a change of life where we don't go back to a life of sin. This is true. 
but it doesn't mean we never sin. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Rather, it means sin does not characterize our lives any longer. But what happens when we do sin? Do we then need to be resaved? Do we then have to work off these sins on our own? God saves us the first time through the blood, and then from that point on we have to keep ourselves saved or rework to earn our salvation? No, we, we trust in God's message. My little children, I, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Again, notice, I'm writing that you do not sin. If you do, you have an advocate. An advocate means one who comes alongside to help. And it had several uses in the Greek and the Roman world, but the one probably meant here would be what we would call today like a defense lawyer, standing up to plead the case of his client. I think the NIV captures this idea well. It says Jesus speaks to the Father in our defense. It's important for us to understand, once we're saved, we're disciples of Jesus, our sins are every bit as significant and as important and as serious as the sins of an unbeliever. In fact, in my, and I don't know if I could prove this conclusively, but I believe the sins of a disciple of Jesus are worse and more serious than that of an unbeliever. The Bible uses the image of a bride and the bridegroom and of being unfaithful when we go off into the world and we go off into sin. Fornication is a sin. It's wrong. But there's something very personal about your spouse committing adultery. Very personal, very painful. It's, it's, fornication is serious, but your spouse committing adultery is more serious. I think this is the picture. It is a sin against the love of God. The disciples' sin, our sin, makes us just as guilty of transgression, just as worthy of condemnation and punishment as it does an unbeliever. So why do we not face that? Why do we not experience that? Because Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And if Jesus were not our advocate with the Father, this is exactly what we would get. Jesus, as our advocate, stands before God and pleads our case when we sin. Now, Jesus is the only one who can because, as it says, He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the only one who can plead our case, for He is the only one who has never sinned. He is the only one who has never done wrong. And He followed up His sinless life with a sacrificial death. He lived so sinlessly, the Pharisees could not find anyone who could accuse him of wrongdoing. And when they paid false people to give a witness, their, their witnesses did not agree because they just couldn't think of anything Jesus had done. Since Jesus 
alone is perfect in righteousness. He is the only one who has the right to stand before God on another's behalf. But what does Jesus plead when he stands before God as our advocate? Well, let me explain what he doesn't plead. Jesus does not plead our reputation. Jesus does not plead our good works. Jesus does not plead we are not guilty of committing sin. Jesus does not plead we are pretty good overall. Jesus does not plead our personal meritorious righteousness. So what does Jesus plead? Jesus pleads Jesus. His righteousness. His death. What He has done on our behalf and what has been given to us because we responded to God's message by expressing repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, faith in Jesus means letting go of our sense of righteousness and clinging to Jesus and what He has done on our behalf as our only source of righteousness. The only plea we will ever have before God against our sin, our guilt, and our condemnation is Jesus and what He alone has done for us on the cross. It's part of the point Paul's, or John is making when he calls Jesus our propitiation. The simplest way to understand propitiation is to understand it as an atoning sacrifice. As the propitiation for our sins, Jesus took the punishment our sins earned. And He took that in our place. On the cross, Jesus atoned for our sins by taking the punishment our sins earned. And He took it in our place. And this and this alone makes it possible for us to be righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus took our sin so we can have His Righteousness. This is our hope. This is always our hope. One of the great statements on this I've ever read is from a man named Paul David Tripp. And he says, if you obey for a thousand years, you are no more accepted than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based on Christ's righteousness and not yours. Always. Rest in this. Trust in this. We are not righteous because of us. We are not accepted because of us. We are righteous because of Jesus and Jesus alone. We are accepted because of Jesus and Jesus alone. One last thing to mention and we'll close. Verse 29 it mentions them passing through the Red Sea. And we'll, we'll actually talk about this more in te- detail next week, I believe. But for tonight, I just want to point out everything God did in the plagues leading up and then even in the final plague, the night of the Passover, was to bring them out of Egypt, out of the place of bondage, out of the place of slavery, and into a land that He would give them. And the Bible says they left. God made it so they could be set free. And they went. And they went where God wanted them to go. And they did what God wanted them to do. 
Everything God has done for us through Jesus was to free us from sin. To adopt us as His children. To give us His inheritance. To fill us with His spirits. To gift us to serve Him. And to appoint us as His ambassadors to the world. And the reality is, some of us may need to leave Egypt tonight. We may need to leave sin and live in the freedom Jesus has given us. We may need to leave our feelings of inadequacy and live as children of the Most High God. We may need to leave the spiritual poverty we live in and live as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We may need to leave powerless lives and live as the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led disciples of Jesus we are meant to be. We may need to leave purposeless lives and live as spiritually gifted ambassadors for Jesus who plead with people to be reconciled to God. Jesus did not free us to leave us where He found us. God did not do all He did in the first part of Exodus to leave them in Egypt. We need to leave and go where God wants us to go. And be who God has saved us to be. God's message about salvation of faith is the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus. Therefore, salvation, by, salvation of faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Do you believe the gospel? The bad news and the good news. Have you responded to the gospel personally with repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in the gospel? Not striving to earn righteousness, but resting in the righteousness of Jesus. If you cannot say honestly yes to all of those questions, Make today the day you settle it with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We thank you for the salvation we have by faith in Jesus. We thank you that Jesus paid it all. Help us, Father, to better understand that. Help us to live in that. And Lord, if we are still living in Egypt in one way or another, help us to leave arms up in victory because of what Christ has done in us and through us and for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.